them boys told us we was going to have some French fried potatoes and them tater tots to eat for dinner. I didn't see none, did you? No. The the catering guy said there were some tater tots down in the uh, in the room during lunchtime, and I kept a few in my pocket. Then these buttheads ate them all. I was freaking starving. <sighs> you still have that llama or that goat or whatever you had there a while ago? You talking about Tina? I no. reckon that's her name. No, we had to give her away to Lyle the farm because her milk always tasted like hay. It was freaking gross. So, are you like, like mentally retarded or something? Yes, sir, but all us mentally retarded boys have real big peckers. What's a pecker? Is that like some kind of bird of prey? Well, the way the girls put it, it's a gargantuan penis. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Sling Blade. All right, let's try this again. There we go. A little behind-the-scenes BTS for y'all. We tried to kick it off, and something was fucked up with my mic. So here we go again. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined uh, on a Saturday afternoon by my friend and co-host, Julio. Julio, we're doubling up here. We're taking care of a lot of business today as we have endured and looks like we're on the other side, the the downside, uh, or at least the descent of the <laughs> great blizzard of Texas in 2021. Uh, how are you holding up, my friend? Uh, I'm doing okay. I, my wife was just taking care of business while I was at work. And she mm-hmm. kind of made sure that we were super prepared uh, for the worst case scenario, which thankfully never happened. We never lost like the ability to keep warm, which was a big thing. We never ran out of food, and we never ran out of water. So that was a lot of bad for a lot of people out there. So both Huli and I fairly fortunate in our circumstances. So obviously our thoughts go out to everybody. But what uh, all that means for us here uh, with the Contrarians, we're doubling up today. We got an afternoon of recording ahead of us because we already had two episodes planned uh, for this week. Uh, obviously, this one we're about to dive into, and then also a Patreon exclusive. So, Julio and I are going to be uh, close acquaintances. We're going to get close and keep each other warm here for the, the the afternoon. Julio, 
this episode, I mentioned we have a Patreon exclusive that we're going to discuss uh, a bit later. But for this, this actually came as a request from a Patreon, correct? Uh, yes. And once again, Alex, I must correct you. It's not a request. It's an order. It's a demand. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> our our friend and patron, Ben Murray from Filmbusters, he has demanded that we do Sling Blade, a fresh movie at 96%, I think. Yep. Uh, 96 <laughs> Or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say yep. I should say mm-hmm. <laughs> I was wondering how long it was going to take before one of us delve into that endless supply of uh, memes didn't exist back then. So, but still, Billy Bob Thornton in this movie, he's very memeable. There weren't really memes or search that were searchable. It was. I'm trying to think of what the keyword for Sling Blade impressions would have been on AOL back in '96. <laughs> so our friend Ben uh, just listened to their Antichrist episode. And Ben, actually, I, I tweeted about it, but made me laugh. He just referenced, um, made this random Futurama reference in the middle of Antichrist, which anything you can do to bring levity to discussing that movie, I definitely appreciate. <laughs> so do we know, is he a big fan of this one? I think so. I think I think it might be one of his favorite movies. And I mean, obviously, he knows how the show works. So he knows that <laughs> we're going to tear apart one of his favorite movies uh, in the first half of the show. It is Sling Blade, the Billy Bob Thornton um, self-guided vehicle from 1996 that he uh, directed and also was a screenplay. And uh, it was based on a short film written by him. So it's basically just the Billy Bob show all the way around. And he's the star. How do you think that how did that start? Right. Was it like because you know how in sometimes comedians in Saturday Night Live, they have a character that they like to play. And then from then on, they're like, well, I have this character, so I'm going to write a movie about it. And then you get, mm -hmm. you know, Night of the Roxbury or whatever. <laughs> and then they're like, this is so silly. Nobody wants it. So I guess I'm directing it. So mm -hmm. do you think that Billy Bob had that this character, this Link Blade character in his back pocket? And he was just kind of trying to do something with it. it? Yeah. It's like, well. Yeah. Nobody's offered me a role where I can play a homicidal uh, Southern man uh, that's mentally challenged. So I'm going to have to do it myself. It's like some Uwe bullshit. He, no studio would go with it. So he's just like, well, fuck it. I guess I got to do it to get it right here. <laughs> or um, shit. Who's that guy that I talk shit about all the time? Buffalo 66. What's his name? Oh, oh, shit. Uh, Vince Gallows? Yes. I was going to say Vincent D'Onofrio, but I knew that was wrong. No, uh, please do not offend. <laughs> do not insult Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> Vincent yeah, Gallo. Billy Bob basically here laying out the groundwork for the idea of the director that just knows no one can do it right, so they have to do it themselves. The uh, M. Night Shyamalan principle that would be defined in the early 21st century. Sling Blade released on November 27th of 1996. Um, hilariously enough, Miramax film, meaning that evil and brooding harvey weinstein was behind it all uh i read that he watched like the first 10 minutes and was like yep and just said take all my money you need and then when he saw like the final product he was mad that he invested in it so <laughs> it's definitely a movie that you kind of have to watch the entire thing or at least it's not something you can just like read the first five pages of the script and think you understand what's going to happen uh so. yeah especially well what was was this just billy bob fresh off in decent proposal much like this show <laughs> Day Tripper. Yes. Tripper comma day. Uh, what was... I'm trying to think of if he had done anything in between there. Because it is funny coming off of Indecent Proposal where he's literally just a celebrated extra. And then here, you know, he takes over the world, so to speak, and uh, becomes this Academy Award winner and 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now it looks like he had a few projects. He had on deadly ground, floundering dead man, the star, the stars fell on Harry and Etta, and then came sling blade. But you got to think this is definitely where it all began. He would not have had the role of uh, Dan Truman in a, uh, Armageddon had it not been for <laughs> the role of Carl. I will always remember that shot of Billy Bob Thornton, eyes closed, resting his head on a wall. I guess as yes. he gets the bad news that, that Bruce Willis and the boys are not coming back. So good. So if this is your first time joining us here on The Contrarians, we do greatly appreciate it. If you're a returning listener, thank you as well. Give us just a moment here while we explain what we do to any and all potential uh, first-time listeners. With a movie like Sling Blade, I think it's possible that some people might be coming in for the first time. So here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. I think our usual... uh, shooting is about 85% and above being that sling blade is at 96% on rotten tomatoes. It definitely, it more than qualifies. It's almost a, uh, an optimum case. Uh, what we do with these certified fresh movies is pick them apart and make a case for maybe why they, uh, were a bit too celebrated and why the critics didn't stop to think about some of the uh, more negative aspects of it. On the other side of that coin on our alternating episodes, we find a uh, nasty green splotch, often known as rotten, about 30% and below. And we'll make a case for the positive aspects of those movies that weren't celebrated. Uh, that all takes place in the first portion of our podcast, the aptly titled Contrarian's Corner. Uh, the second half of the podcast, though, Julio, is where people find out how we really feel. That's correct. That's real talk. And that's where not just people, but more often than not, each other, like Alex and I, especially now that we don't watch movies together because of... Uh, because of COVID, we don't know now how the other one feels about a certain movie, unless it's a movie that we've already talked about previously. Like when we did Eurotrip, you knew. You knew where I stood with Eurotrip. But uh, here, Slimblade, neither of us had seen it before. So we know how Ben feels about it. We don't know how each other feels about it. So that'll be part of the fun of Real Talk. Yeah, I think this will be a, an interesting discussion, and I greatly look forward to it. I mean, neither of us had seen Sling Blade, but I think both of us can speak to uh, decades worth of impressions that we were familiar with. I knew at some point in this movie the phrase potatoes, French fried potatoes, was going to be said. <laughs> but really, I wasn't expecting this to serve as the prequel to Bad Santa, which is what really took me by surprise. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't even know the potatoes thing. I Oh, really? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I knew the... The underbite part of the performance. I think that's the one thing I knew. And uh, that he had won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Coming into this, had you never heard anyone use the expression, not funny, haha, funny, queer, like in that Sling nope. Blade voice? Nope. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was. that was one that I was waiting for, too. That's something I've heard ad nauseum. Uh, man, did you, I, I am... it, uh, did you expect the context to involve John Ritter? No, not at all. That's... Uh, <laughs> See, and what I never knew either was that his response to it is like, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, get him, John. <laughs> so we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, Julio. Let's uh, let's start as we usually do. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means the critics were pretty much falling over themselves to circle jerk this movie. What were they saying about it? A whole bunch of uh, red tomatoes on their Run Tomatoes website. I think it's a, appropriate for this episode to refer to them as tomatoes. Tomatoes. <laughs> French fried tomatoes. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, they, they, fried green tomatoes. Uh, yeah, go. it all comes around. Um, fried red tomatoes. I got a few fried red tomatoes from uh, the website. Starting with Matthew Rosa from MatthewRosa.com, who says, 
It is a full-blooded story, rich in the best and worst of elements of the human condition, and one of the most satisfying cinematic experiences I've ever had. Which I found a little disturbing, because I don't know that I would call this experience a satisfying experience. It, it was pretty disturbing, uh, pretty unnerving, but I, I don't know about satisfying. Uh, satisfying is pretty dark. Yeah. Matthew, what are you getting off on here, <laughs> Slimblade? Are you just, is it just a French fry fetish, or is it it, I was darker? about to say it's a it's a very niche fetish for uh, uh, lawnmower blades. Brandy Johnson from McLean's Magazine says, "Stretched over 141 minutes and threaded with humor, it is remarkably spare and simple. A slow movie about a slow man." Forrest Gump unplugged. Does it have a date on that review? That sounds like a mid '90s review. Like that was a reaction at the time. It has to be. Uh, there weren't that many reviews to begin with in Rotten Tomatoes. I think there's like maybe 40, less than 50. That's one, man. We, we talk about being old all the time on here. That That's very likely a reference that many young people of today would not get. Who's like, Forrest Gump? Well, the unplugged <laughs> part of it. What's unplugged? Forrest Gump has survived in a way that MTV's unplugged shows haven't i guess charm the pants off richard nixon i mean of course it's gonna endure the test of time all right next e staff from e online so everybody like all the 10 people on staff at e got together and dropped this quote american films rarely depict the lower class milieu as respectfully as this unsentimental drama do you think that this is an accurate depiction of the lower class alex I think there's some realistic aspects to it for sure. I was I was so positive one of the reviews you were going to pick out was going to describe it as Dickensian. I'm just really surprised. <laughs> it seems like this movie is just ripe for someone to, you know, be watching it and just already rubbing themselves over their pants knowing they're going to use the word Dickensian in a review for it. <laughs> that was the that was the unplugged guy. He ended up going with a more modern reference. He had just lit, finished listening to uh, Nirvana Unplugged. He's just like, the world needs to know. But joke's on him, though, because if he had used Dickensian, people would know what he was talking about. <laughs> people today, yeah. yeah. People, uh, it would be, it would endure the test of time, unlike Unplugged. But yeah, to finish that thought, by the way, the Nirvana's Unplugged album, that's their best album. So there you go. I just want to make sure that's on record for <laughs> hot now take, and forever. Hot take on the contrarians. <laughs> Starting off hot here. All right, and Julio, how did you come to watch Sling Blade for this uh, episode? So Slim Blade was on HBO Max. Great transfer. No special features. Every now and then, uh, you have HBO Max too, right? They'll, you know how mm-hmm. they you select the movie, and then if you're lucky, there's actually extra stuff, as if you were watching a yeah. a DVD. There's on the menu. So I figured this movie has history. It's an awards winner. Launched the career of Billy Bob Thornton. There might be something there, but uh, but no. There wasn't. And to be honest, it's a long movie. So if there had been, I don't know that I would have jumped into it right after. But I was hoping that you'd have the original short there, which it's not on HBO Max, but I, I found it on a website. I, I watched the original short for Greener Grass. Uh, the least I can do is also watch the original short for Sling Blade. I forgot you did that. Just far too much dedication to the Greener Grass episode. <laughs> but yeah, I watched it the exact same way. I watched it on my laptop while uh, doing some work this week i watched it on my big monitor on hbo max and yeah it looked fantastic so the year was 1996 we were 
right around the time that Bill Clinton got reelected because this was November 27th of 1996. So he had just begun his second term as a president. And oh, boy, he, he was comfortable. He was fairly comfortable to be himself. I was going to say, I think the J.T. Walsh character here that kicks off Sling Blade is a little on the nose for the second Clinton administration. <laughs> Do you know J.T. Walsh from anything? Because I saw him and instantly I went, that's Markinson from A Few Good Men. I immediately, every time I see J.T. Walsh, I say, it's the mayor from Pleasantville. That's <laughs> what I always go to. I don't even know what his character's name is, but he's the one in Pleasantville that... Remember when he gets really mad at Tobey Maguire and he yells how he turns into color because he like expresses emotion uh-huh, uh-huh. and he uh, makes sure to start off an off-putting movie in a very off-putting way. This is an example, too, of like a it's almost like a Tarantino-esque opening scene in that you really don't know how long you're going to be there for. The difference being here, I was just, you know, yelling at my monitor for it to be over because hearing <laughs> J.T. Walsh talk about his uh affinity for huge bushes it's i I don't know about you julio it wasn't doing much for me well the worst part is that he is telling so many stories and he never finishes them it's like driving with somebody that keeps changing the song on the radio before it's over here he he starts on something and you know that each of these stories has a terrible ending but the worst part is that you know because we cut away he's talking to to billy bob and then we cut away to something and then we cut back to him, and he's telling something completely different. And it was just exasperating. Much like in last episode, we're talking about Decent Proposal, how we never got to see Demi Moore and Robert Redford have sex. They like kind of <laughs> faded to black before we got to the ending of that segment. Here's the same thing, over and over, with J.T. Walsh. And I did not care, especially because it doesn't matter. At least in, in Decent Proposal, well, the story continued with those characters. We're not going to see J.T. Walsh again until the end of the movie. <laughs> Three hours later. Just talking about pubes. And I mean, maybe he had just watched Jade recently. I think it would have been around the same time. So he was jealous of the dude's pube collection. But that place, that that hospital that they're in, it looks like the kind of place where they would play Jade for the for the patients. Jade and just reruns of the A-Team or fucking Good Times or some shit. Or no, no, no. no. In like the Looney Bin that they're in, they would just replay the god awful 80s episodes of SNL. Like when the show almost (laughs) like went off the air because it's all they could afford tapes of for the inmates. Back to the lecture at hand here about Sling Blade. That is what we're here to talk about. Ben's Demand episode. It is the story of Carl Childers. And this movie, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be based present day at the release time. There's really nothing to indicate uh, any differently. He is a simple man, intellectually disabled man in Arkansas who has been in a mental hospital since the age of 12. At that time, he... Uh, murdered a man that he thought was raping his mother, but then came to find out that she was, uh, she was a party to what was going on and, you know, cheating on his father. So he killed her too using, what did he use Julio? Uh, Well, they call it a sling blade. Did you think before watching this movie that he was named sling blade? Because I did. I thought that when the poster of your movie says sling blade, and then it's just Billy Bob Thornton's face. I thought that that was him. That, That was what he was called. They should have just named the movie Carl. I love the poster, too, because the color palette and basically the layout with the sunset in the background, it's still that time period where every drama had to be Last of the Mohicans, at least the appearance of it in some way. (laughs) It certainly sells you a much uh, happier movie than what we get. Yeah, it it seems like this movie of hope and, oh, he's going to conquer the system. He's going to, you know, like a Rudy type thing. Here nor there, Carl 
killed his mom and her lover, both local known people. Uh, I think an, another parallel or uh, analogy comparison, what have you, I can make to Daniel Day Lewis here is it's not funny because he's obviously a mentally challenged individual, but just like I said, coming in here with the parody level at an all time high for a movie that you and I have done that we've never seen before. When he first started talking, it was like this big reveal of his voice, like Daniel Day Lewis and Lincoln. Like everyone was like, how's he going to talk? What's he going to sound like? And it builds up to it. So finally hearing him just be like, mm, you want to know why I got these scars? I was just like, my God, we've arrived. It's something that performance. So do you want to know more so than the voice? What I took the most note of here in the opening sequence uh, was the score. The the one the major inconsistency in this movie is its score. It's basically like Billy Bob just ran out of money and had to use public domain shit. And <laughs> like in this first portion, it's like wow, 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 wow. And it sounds like these outer space effects. Like something, you know, from Planet Nine or some shit. And it does not tonally match up at all with him talking about cutting his mom's head off. Back then, in 96, did you even have the ability to get online and kind of look for public domain shit? Or did you have to go to the library? <laughs> or just go around and, and see which band was playing Friday night at the local bar and, and see if, if they would do something for you? I think part of the Dwight Yoakam being in this was that the deal was the movie would be comprised of his experimental work, you know, not his typical music that people are used to. It was his experimental album that the record wouldn't pick, the record label wouldn't pick up. So Billy Bob was like, good problem solved can save money on this. But Dwight Yoakam was like, but, but I have to play the biggest asshole in the world. Otherwise it's not worth it for my career. You're pretty convincing in that role. Uh, Dwight, I don't, I don't, I'm curious how difficult it was for him. And to confirm, uh, Carl calls it a Kaiser blade. He says some folks call it a sling blade. I call it a Kaiser blade. Whatever the case, we got the title of the movie s spoken by the main character in the first five, ten minutes. So it was a win for all parties involved. We don't even um, have the title screen with no. the movie's title yet. And he already mentioned the, the title of the movie. So he killed his mom and Jesse Dixon, who was a local businessman, uh, revered or reviled by the local population depending on your perspective it has been deemed by the state and the uh, hospital that he has been rehabilitated so they're gonna cut him loose and let him back on the town uh this whole exposition of what happened and why he was there was given to a local uh, college reporter who was there to like cover the story and well do you think he'll kill again and she even asked him do you think he'll kill again and in the classic sling blade style, we can just call him sling blade. Carl or sling blade are interchangeable. <laughs> says, I, I I doubt I have any reason or I don't think I have any reason to kill anybody again, which is obviously very foreboding. But also not reassuring at all. I don't understand how I, I don't buy it. How is it that this hospital is letting him out saying that he's no longer a threat to anybody when he's telling American the medical system, baby? Yeah. When he tells somebody. Well, I don't think I'm going to kill anybody because I don't think anybody's going to piss me off. That doesn't say that he's not going to kill anybody. <laughs> that more than likely means that he's going to kill somebody. Uh, yeah, he's just basically saying, as long as no one pisses me off, I'm not going to kill anybody. Yep. <laughs> Here you go, sir. You're free. That's <laughs> Here's it. your books. It's it's pretty bad when uh, Smith's Grove has a better policy when it comes to releasing patients than whatever this podunk hospital is at least they knew to keep Michael Myers inside. He escapes. 
here they just let the Billy Bob out. I am very proud of you for that reference. That, that made me very happy. Thank you very much. You, you've learned a great deal and become a good man through the process of this podcast. So well done. And he is out. You know, he breaks away uh, or he's basically just told to leave. That's the worst part. And that's the most damning, the biggest indictment on the American medical system for mental health in this movie is he's like, I don't want to leave. And he like walks around. He's a free man. And he comes back. He's like, I want to come back. And they're like, nope, not the way it works. Ain't a hotel. Get lost. The, so, the guy even says, look, the only way you're getting back here is if you kill someone again. Uh, Billy Bob just kind of scratches his head and is like, well, point taken. Give me two it's hours. It's like one of those one of those like cop movies where there's like this massive uh, negotiation. Like, well, we can't tell you to do this, but if you did, here's what would happen. <laughs> well, well, Sling Blade, <laughs> I can't give you your old bed back, but if you go and butcher somebody, then maybe you could sleep in your bed again. He packs up his books and he's out of there, not even with a stick and bindle. And he comes to find that he is a big fan of French fries. There's basically like a um, an Austin equivalent is Sandy's, like a little burger hop that you walk up to and order. There's burgers, fries, ice cream, basically the way Whataburger began. And he walks up to this guy and he's basically like a senior at a movie theater. What's that movie about? What's that movie about? Can you tell me about this movie? And the guy's just like, it's hamburgers, man. Hamburgers, shakes, and fries. And But this obviously is necessary because it births the French fried potatoes line. But then, okay, so here's a perfect example of a, of a scene that goes on forever. Because, I mean, I don't know, Alex. I I feel, I still feel weird calling myself, fuck, even a, a, an American citizen feels weird, even though I've been one for a long time. Uh, but also calling myself a Southerner even though I've lived in the South the entire time that I've lived in the United States. Uh, you say y'all. You're one of us. I, I guess so, yeah. Well, you are more of a Southerner than I am, I feel like. Yeah! And did you feel uncomfortable, upset, offended even by the depiction of the South in this movie? Especially, oh, yeah. Especially when you consider that the person who asked us to watch this movie for the show is somebody from England. <laughs> he basically just assumed we were going to be pigs and shit in this movie and just so happy. Like, oh, we're amongst our own kind here. <laughs> Maybe he thought that we were going to be able to offer some insight into the really weird shit that goes on in this movie that to somebody from a civilized country like England would be just insane. Like, why are they letting that guy out? When he should definitely like, stay in the hospital. It's like that scene in House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, ben is Rain Wilson and I'm Sid Haig. Why are you asking me all these dumb fucking questions? <laughs> oh, I get it. I'm just a dumb hillbilly. I need some edumacation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is this is Ben's polite way of uh, to ask us to explain why we have someone like Ted Cruz in the Senate. It's like, hey guys, can you explain <laughs> Sling Blade to me? It's like uh, Oscar and we're Michael Scott and he's trying to talk politics with us just to show how dumb we are. That's basically him <laughs> making us watch Sling Blade. To answer your question, I'm not, not helping our cause here, but obviously places like this do exist in the South, but there's more to it. There's, I mean, like uh, RoboCop was in Dallas and we saw how prospering of a city that looked like. It, it's such a prospering futuristic city. It was used to depict the future in a movie with a really... <laughs> No difference made to it. I don't like the idea that this is the uh, this is the idea that so many people have of the South that not just you know a failed medical system uh, 
and a guy killing people, but more or less, you know, people not using proper English, playing stickball, I don't know, playing in the mud, doing whatever people are doing in this movie. Yeah, we'll we'll get to Robert Duvall in a bit, but I think everyone in the South has an uncle like that. I don't think I was kind of surprised to find out that that wasn't a thing in the North, but it is what it is. I think what hit me the most was that it becomes, as the movie goes along, it just becomes this sort of parody of Southern hospitality, which I think that's that's what hurt <laughs> because Southern hospitality. I mean, that's that's one of the good things in the South. Yeah. Right, that you can claim that if nothing else, we're pretty friendly around here, and then this movie takes that friendliness and turns it into stupidity. This guy who murdered two people, who basically has told you that he's going to murder again, he's just embraced by the community, except for the one guy that's a complete asshole. No win scenario. Basically, everybody's either too dumb to realize that that Slain Blade is a danger to the community or a horrible person. And that's the only reason why they don't like Billy Bob. So, Oh, yeah. Or we're just dumb Southerners. Nothing bad could happen to us. That's basically the, the thought process that a lot of them have. Mm-hmm. Sling Blade, fresh out of the institution, befriends local youngster Frank Wheatley, played by Lucas Black of Friday Night Lights fame. A 12-year-old boy who basically, I think they're both in the same place mentally and... This, of course, is a red flag immediately, but like you said, <laughs> the people in the South are just too fucking vapid to uh, really accept what is happening or to see what's happening right in front of their uh, noses. It's funny because when I saw the kid, my note was, oh, he looks like a young Lucas Black as a joke. <laughs> and then suddenly I realized that it was Lucas Black because as the movie went on, I was like, he sounds so much like Lucas Black and kind of looks like <laughs> Lucas Black, who... Yes, I've seen Friday Night Lights, but to me, he is the protagonist of the unfairly maligned third Fast and Furious movie, Tokyo Drift. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of proud of myself for recognizing him in the child version. And again, I mean, you know, it's good to know that he would go on to do bigger and better things. Yeah. uh, And Billy Bob pretty much right away tells him he killed people and that's why he was in the institution and the kids just like oh all right my dad killed himself so we're we're kind of alike you and i <laughs> uh and introduces him to his mother linda and her happenstantial gay best friend vaughn played by john ritter of course uh, she works at the local dollar store now Running kind of parallel, concordant, vis-a-vis, any words that the architect in the Matrix would use here, any expressions, I should say. We have Sling Blade getting a job at a local uh, engine shop. His former counselor, doctor, whatever term you want to use from the institution, hooks him up with a job at a local repair shop, and he ends up living kind of in the storage shed. They chain him up like a damn animal in there. Southern hospitality. Southern. <laughs> Well, this locks from the outside, so you're not going to be able to go anywhere at night. But the to, to their guy credit, who runs to their credit, I think after one night they give him the key. Bill Cox, who runs the shop, who's played by the incomparable Rick Dial, who is a character actor of just basically southern roles like this, and he had a really great part in Bernie as well. I'm actually a really big fan of him. His work is very limited. He doesn't really have that big of a filmography to speak of. It's not like a a Lawrence Fishburne type thing where it's just every movie that's been made, but he 
has had some really good roles. He was in Crazy Heart as well. Big fan of his. Also in business with Bill Cox is Scooter Hodges, who works at the shop, who's played by Brent Briscoe, who was uh, just a shining example. Like You're not going to find a greater one in my mental capacity of me spending 15 minutes of the movie trying to figure out where the, <laughs> where do I know this fucking guy from. And it was one of those where I wanted to figure it out on my own, but I couldn't, so I had to look it up. He play, He's JJ, who owns JJ's Diner in Parks and Rec. Like I, I knew that I knew him from somewhere, so I eventually pulled that up. But I thought you were gonna tell me that a, he was a wrestler. It, I mean, in '96, it would have made sense because the business was uh, falling at a rapid rate. <laughs> it was starting to get uh, on the incline again. JJ's there. Bill Cox, Rick Dial, as I mentioned, they uh, Bill runs the place. Says it's not Christian for me to not give you a key to this place. It's really a moot point, though, because he's not there for very long. After Frank is like, Mom, I like this guy. She's like, okay, well, he can live as the garage or the shed that they have. Wait, that, that would never happen. You wouldn't do that for a stranger that has not come out of a mental institution. You're no. definitely not doing it for somebody no. who has come out of a mental institution under mysterious circumstances. And it's not even the thing of like, well, it was a different time. I was alive in 1996. My parents would not have just let some random stranger stay in our shed, let alone someone who just got out of the institution. Yeah. And like, it's one of those things too. the, the uh, out of towner, I guess, the Hollywood boy in John Ritter, Vaughn is just like, are you fucking crazy? What are you doing? He's trying to be the voice of reason. And she's like, oh, that's not how we do things down here. Uh, how do you feel about John Ritter as a gay man in this movie? John Ritter's awesome in almost all circumstances. So I appreciate the role that he took on, but it seems like he's just kind of there. He's like Andy Samberg and I love you, man. I'm gay because the script says so. That is part of the story. Not John Ritter. I think he did the best with what he had, but that's part of the story that bothers me too, is it just points out the overt homophobia and hatred that resided in the south in the late 90s and some mid 90s and still to this day in some uh some places so i felt bad for john ritter having to be the one that was picked on just because i like him and he he just seemed like his feelings were hurt like i want to believe that none of that shit dwight yoakam said to him was scripted and he really got his feelings (laughs) hurt about it yeah it's it's complicated i think that it's i love john ritter as well but i know him as I think most of America and the world does as a comedic actor. One of my problems with watching this movie was that I was having a hard time figuring out what was supposed to be funny and what was just the the script and the performances missing the mark, right? Like the first, I don't know, mm-hmm. 30 minutes or so, maybe even through the entire movie, honestly. I was trying to figure out if the movie wanted me to laugh at the absurdity of everything that was happening, like this single mother inviting this complete stranger to live in the garage and and, uh, and the appearance of John Ritter with a really weird haircut playing a gay man did not help make things clear especially and I know this is more my thing than yours but Three's Company the <laughs> ultimate John Ritter vehicle the whole joke there is that he's a, a straight man pretending to be gay so that he can live in this apartment with these two women so to have him, you know, that's his role. That's what you know John Ritter for. And to have him now playing an actual gay man in a movie that has a lot of probably unintentional comedy, it's just weird. It's too much of a mindfuck. I understand that uh, Billy Bob was probably just cashing in every 
favor that he had in order to make his movie, but there was a misfire. Again, I love John Ritter, but I think that his presence in the movie just muddles the water when it comes to the intentions of, of the movie of the filmmaker. Yeah, it kind of there's like a disconnect there. John Ritter was included in this. Uh, Billy Bob, when writing the script, had him in mind for the character of Vaughn. So not unlike Vincent Vega and uh, Quentin Tarantino, their relationship was... The die was cast from the start, and I don't think Ritter really had a say in what he was going to do. He's <laughs> like, well, what if my character did this? And Billy Bob's like, nope, not how I wrote it. Get back to, back on your mark. Do you want to be in Bad Santa or not? It's like, hey, man, I got ties at Universal. I'll get you the fuck out of Bride of Chucky in two years if you don't do what I say right now. <laughs> it's as good a time as any to point out here because Linda and uh, Vaughn, upon their meeting of Carl, have it to say plenty, frequent, almost nauseating overuse of the word retard in this movie. I know that's... And rightfully so, that word has taken on a connotation that's as bad as, you know, some racial slurs or uh, homophobic slurs by today's standards. So because of that, it's pretty jarring to hear, even if, you know, like we've talked about before, the use of the word gay in the late 90s and, you know, oh, that's gay, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think we've grown as a people. And I think even if the if the argument was going to be, well, in 1996, Arkansas People said that word a lot. That still doesn't give you just a free pass to say it all you want in a movie. I think that's people's arguments against Tarantino about some of the racial slurs that he uses. Right. You can say it once or twice and it gets the point across, man. For Dwight Yoakam, he uses it like a comma. It's it's completely unnecessary, the overkill here. The argument is that 1996, Dwight Yoakam used that word a lot. <laughs> so it's, it's... That's actually one of the notes on the IMDb trivia section. <laughs> Known user of the R word, Dwight Yoakam was anxious to take this role. <laughs> he is the worst. So it it's, of course, no surprise that the movie would actually add that feature to his character. Because anything that Billy Bob Thornton can do to show that the Dwight Yoakam character is the worst person in the planet, he will do. So, that, that of course, yeah, he's going to have him use... Uh, the R word that he's going to have him be homophobic and he's going to just have a shitty band. It's just the words you can think of. Dwight Yoakam is there to encapsulate it. We've mentioned him numerous times by his, uh, his legal name of Dwight Yoakam. So let's just go ahead and discuss the character of Doyle Hargraves. This is Dwight Yoakam, as we mentioned, and he is the boyfriend of Linda, uh, not necessarily a live in, but he's there constantly. He's a drunk. He's an asshole. He's uh, abusive. Uh, Frank has no time for him. Frank hates him, misses his dad. And Doyle is, he exists to be a villain. I mean, it's the type of thing of the best movies sometimes with uh, are ones where you find s that you agree with the antagonist or that challenge you to see why the, the bad guy or bad woman in the film does what they do and why they are the way that they are. And this... Doyle exists just for you to hate him from the, from the jump yep. and, you know, subtlety out the window when it comes to Dwight Yoakam. And I think this probably endeared him to a lot of his fan base. Man, I don't understand why he was the bad guy in that movie. <laughs> but to add on to all of it, and I, I think it's pretty fucking hilarious that part of it is he's a failed musician who sucks at playing the guitar. So I thought that that was funny. 
And I think, you know, similar to Ben's dig at us for making us do it, maybe that was Billy Bob's dig at Dwight Yoakam of like, your music sucks, so I'm just going to show the world that. <laughs> My main thing really is, why would you use Dwight Yoakam when you could have used Chris Elliott? <laughs> what? <laughs> Did you watch Shit's Creek recently or something? Yep. <laughs> oh, there you go. That makes sense. Yep. I mean, yeah, he, he's... He's someone that just looks like a bad guy, just greasy and really maligning to begin with. And so I could see that, but it would have taken the budget up at least $3 million to have Chris <laughs> Elliott sign on in 1996. Scary movie twos, Chris Elliott. The relationship between Frank and Slingblade is definitely beginning to develop. And as much as we joke about some of the problematic natures of this movie, their relationship really has no problematic nature to it. And it's by no fault of Slingblade or Frank. It's just that the people around them don't seem to see an issue with this convicted killer hanging out with this little boy. But they're kind of there for each other. Like I said, they're in a similar mental capacity. It comes to Frank, you know, telling uh, that he originally told him his dad got hit by a train, but then he tells him that his dad ended up actually killing himself because, you know, he couldn't, he got laid off and it was a burden, some heavy shit for the, the family uh, and for the little boy, Frank, to um, process. And, you know, explains that he hates Doyle. We get more in the discussion of uh, Billy Bob explaining, you know, what he did and why he did to Frank. And, and, uh, but eventually he just puts a cap on it and says, You're just a boy. You need to think good thoughts. Yep. Which is like some of the worst therapy I could ever think of. Just because that's such like a, a like a depression deniers line of defense is well, just don't think about it. Just don't be sad. So poor Frank, man. He's he's reaching out for help and there's no one there to give it to him. This whole stretch of the movie, which is I think ninety percent of the movie, basically the plot just sets into how horrible Dwight Yoakam is to this family, to everybody, to. Uh, to Frank, to Frank's mom, to Billy Bob, to uh, John Ritter. He's the worst. And it's just like watching this this pot boil really slowly. Pressure cooker, right? I, because, and I don't know if, if Billy Bob Thornton realized this, but you've told us he killed somebody in detail. And then you've told us pretty early on that he doesn't really seem like the kind of guy has a, who would have a problem killing again. And then you introduce a character in the movie... That's giving him plenty of reason. So we know this is going to happen. I mean, that's just the fact that we take two hours for for the inevitable conclusion is ludicrous, right? Uh, the movie is basically this punishing series of sequences of Dwight Yoakam being horrible and us looking at Billy Bob Thornton and going like, are you going to do it or what? How much more are you going to take? Uh, and to me, in my notes, I compared it to uh, the drunk stepfather sequence in Boyhood. If the entire mm-hmm. movie had been that, right? Just this <laughs> drunken asshole being mean and abusive to everybody, and you just keep waiting for some sort of comeuppance, for some sort of change of scenery, something. Because otherwise, it's just you know, it's like we got the point pretty early on. Let's do something mm-hmm. else with with the runtime. And this is where we get some intense homophobia from young Frank, which really just speaks to unfortunately the surroundings that uh, and you know what he's grown up hearing is just talking about how Vaughn is that's where the line came from not funny haha funny queer and you know he goes with men and I think he says something to the effect of he's still a good person though or he's still a nice person and that eventually in turn leads to um, Carl reciting that line in front of Vaughn and Vaughn kind of shames him and shames the entire south with like that's a horrible thing to say but you didn't think of that you were taught that someone said that to you right 
It's just that's how you break the fucking cycle. And then that's when John Ritter should have looked at the camera and been like, this could be any one of us. <laughs> but we get more shots of basically the after effect of Carl doing work at the repair shop. And my note says, do we ever see this fucker work? Because there's so many times when, you know, Bill Cox or Scooter come in. They're like, damn, Carl, you're the best uh, repairman I've ever seen. And we never get to see him actually repair anything. I I don't know. Didn't you feel it was similar to not seeing Robert Redford and Demi Moore have sex? (laughs) Like, I want to see this thing of him, you know, taking everything apart and he's got his goggles on and, you know, just puts everything back together like a goddamn whiz. It it was just really funny. Like, it became to me a joke at one point. I think I think that the horrible implication might be just that the two guys at the at the repair shop are too stupid to fix the simplest things, because the one time that we see Billy Bob actually do something uh, all he does is point out that the the machine that they're working on it's not working because it's out of gas. That's his contribution. And then the scooter goes like, "Oh, you're right," and then it works. So maybe the reason we don't see him work on anything is because he really doesn't have to work on anything. He just has to like plug the lawnmower in, and then it works. <laughs> and Bill Cox is like, "Oh my god, you're a genius!" All that was missing after you know putting gas in it is him like turning the camera and goes, "Who's the dummy now, dummy?" You know that. <laughs> That seems like it writes itself. I just have a note here. I guess it was from one of his diatribes. It says, Dwight Yoakam, dot, 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 acting? (laughs) (laughs) You were just just speaking to this, but my note says, who is the good guy? Who is the protagonist in this movie? Frank? You know, the problem is that just on a purely structural screenwriting sense, I guess, the only person that maybe has an arc, sort of, is Billy Bob Thornton. And it's fucking minimal. You know, like, if you want to jump all the way to the very, very end of the movie, the one thing that changes for Billy Bob is that he doesn't want to listen to uh, J.T. Walsh's stories anymore. <laughs> Three weeks off. I could have told you that from the beginning. I mean, the audience could have told you that from the beginning. <laughs> I don't want to hear J.T. Walsh talking about pubes. Movie's over. <laughs> I mean, Frank doesn't really learn anything, you know? He was already a good kid at the beginning, uh, maybe a little too trusting, and he's the same at the end. Uh, same thing for the mom. Uh, same thing for John Ritter. You know, John Ritter f- disappears from the movie for a good chunk of it. If the options are between Dwight Yoakam and anybody else, it's going to be anybody else <laughs> because Dwight Yoakam is definitely the the antagonist, the villain, and uh, and he doesn't change either. This is where John Ritter starts to like. I have in my notes here, he wants to be the outcast. He doesn't know how to react now that people are treating Sling Blade poorly, and he's used to being treated poorly. So his reaction to it is just kind of like, well, I don't know if Carl should be around anymore. You know, there's only room in this sandwich for one one piece of meat type of thing. <laughs> Watching him go through these emotions of accepting that, you know, he, yes, he has it unfairly. He's being treated unfairly, but other people are too, and his reaction to it, in his little circle at least. Is uh is a fascinating aspect of the movie. We get just more of Doyle being just a piece of shit. He has his friends come over and they play really crappy music and get really drunk and it leads to this really fucking out of place spoken word mo- uh, moment where one of the people in the band like starts reciting his poetry and this scene would not end. You knew where it was going. Yeah. It was going in Dwight having like a violent outburst and a drunken rage, but it just keeps going with really no direction i think billy bob just turned the camera on and fell asleep sitting on the couch and the rest of the guys just went with it 
<laughs> All the alcohol is real. Just you guys just drink and talk. And then and then we'll edit it. And they didn't edit it. Like most of the sequences of this movie just goes on for too long. And it doesn't really even need to be there. We don't see these characters again. Nobody from this band shows up again, just like the the reporters at the beginning of the movie. They don't show up again. Uh, after a while, the guy, the, the doctor from the from the hospital doesn't show up again. It's just like mm-hmm. characters pop in, do something, and then they disappear, even though, you know, as part of the movie, they should have uh, some sort of uh, resonance in the story, right? If you took away, if you took out the scene with the band, the entire sequence, not just when they're drunk, but also when they're playing, you take it out of the movie, everything stays the same because the only thing that, that it does is, like you said, it just it's just there to establish that Dwight Yoakam is an asshole. And his first scene in the movie already did that. Yeah, he, he's done enough to establish himself as a prick. This leads to a drunken fight. It's actually a really cool shot because it's just a one take. It's a static shot of this whole thing of Doyle kicking everyone out and then yelling at Linda and yelling at Frank and yelling at uh, Vaughn and, of course, Sling Blade. And then ends up pushing Linda and Frank basically hoofs him down is throwing beer bottles and beer cans at him. And the whole time, you know, John Ritter like flees in terror at one point and leaves what's going on. And then uh, Carl's just kind of sitting on the couch. Like, uh, unfortunately, due to Carl's situations, I doubt this is the first time he's been around a violent encounter like that, having lived in a mental institution uh, for the majority of his life. So he just kind of sits there and lets it all pass. Doyle leaves. And then, of course, that means the wind is just right for dick jokes because (laughs) Carl doesn't really know how to cheer up Linda. So he tries to retell one of the jokes that he heard um, Bill and Scooter tell in the repair shop about, you know, one guy had a short penis, one guy had a long penis type of thing. He doesn't really tell it too well. And it just kind of confuses Linda. And so naturally he follows that up with make me dinner or make me biscuits. (laughs) And Linda does. I mean, Linda's a sweetheart. She obviously makes really poor decisions, but I think she she means well at, at her core. And like anyone, when he's like, I'll just take mustard with my biscuits, she's she has no idea how to interpret that. <laughs> uh, once again, it's like the mom. It's like Patricia Arquette in Boyhood. Good intentions, yes. terrible decisions. Hard to feel sorry for you at this point, babe. Vaughn and Linda kind of sets um, Carl up. Not kind of on a date, but they have dinner with someone they work with named Melinda and her and Carl kind of just hit it off. They're kind of friendly. And, you know, it's not like love blossoming on the battlefield type of thing, but she does end up bringing him flowers to work and they exchange some nice words and nice sentiments back and forth. Um, it's weird because but, this is another, I mean, it's weird, but it's also something that shouldn't surprise you. But this is something else that doesn't go anywhere. She brings him flowers. You think that they're finally, that there's finally going to be a, a, another subplot in this movie that's not about the misery of living with Dwight Yoakam or having to deal with Dwight Yoakam, but then she never shows up again. Really, it just leads to more Frank and Carl. Uh, you think that we may have a romantic interest join the fray, but I guess that just wasn't what Carl wanted, but he did appreciate uh, her bringing him flowers. Carl and Frank's relationship continues to grow. They're being more open with one another. He starts to learn that Frank wants Doyle gone and doesn't really care what that would cost. And so here's where I think Carl, unfortunately, sees a little bit of himself in young Frank. And I think he's trying to explain to him why he is the way he is or things, you know, that were bad about life. Uh, Because I believe Frank shares a story about having a sibling that didn't grow up. Did did I catch that correctly? Yeah, fuck. I've forgotten about that. (laughs) My My note just says, 
because uh, I watched this movie a few days ago. My note just says, Billy Bob tells the worst stories. And so I remembered the opening story for the movie, right? Which is a story of how he he thought his mother was being raped. And then it turns out that she was just cheating. But he killed both his mother and the guy that she was with anyway. Uh, and now, yeah, it's the story of how his mom was pregnant and the baby came early. And so the dad handed him the baby who had been born prematurely to dispose of. But the baby was still alive. He, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. So... Instead of throwing him, throwing the baby in the trash can as he's been instructed, he just buried it. But the baby was still alive. I was like, Jesus Christ, you can't tell this story in a movie that has John Ritter in it. It just <laughs> does not compute. It definitely is. This is something I had no knowledge of. and had No interest uh, in knowing ever. I thought the movie, what I knew about it from the beginning, sounded pretty bleak. And this added to it. I was just kind of like, oh, they're having like a nice moment by the pond. They're going to start skipping rocks. And then Billy Bob just started talking. And my notes, I, my note here just says Jesus Christ in all caps. Because, yeah, he basically, his father gave him like what was left over and have attempted home abortion, which is just horrible. And then, you know, he had to bury it. And it's really awful. But you can tell also that uh, he had never really shared that with anybody before. So he really entrusts in Frank. And then, and then he tells him, you should be thinking of happy things. Forget everything I said. Yeah, he's like, uh, 86 that. I didn't mean any of that, but I just said. <laughs> more to show how awful Doyle is, and then more to show how Carl and Frank are beginning to bond. They play football together. He says, I'm proud of you. And they're forming a fatherly slash brotherly relationship that's obviously lacking for both. Um, but after reliving the trauma of his past, I think he... Slingblade, that is, wants to go to the source and kind of get it off his chest. So he goes to his old home, which is just like this abandoned shack where a, a wild Robert Duvall appears. This I did not know. And I also didn't know that he just has like uh, a very brief SNL movie cameo type thing with all the cameos that you get in like the Wayne's Worlds and shit like that. It's um, very random here. But Robert Duvall is a crazy old man who pees in jars and his fingernails are 12 inches long. And he just talks to himself. What were your thoughts of seeing Sir Robert Duvall here? I did not recognize Robert Duvall, Alex. <laughs> I didn't know that was him. I don't know if it's because uh, he was wearing pants. And ever since we did Phenomenon, whenever I think Robert Duvall, I think ass double pressed against uh, a window. But I really know I didn't recognize him, man. I was, I mean, I was kind of worn out by the movie by now. And I was, mm-hmm. my notes about this sequence is like, how did he just walk into a house? Like, yes, it is the South, but we still lock our doors. And then my second note is, why no guns? It is the South. <laughs> you know, how is it that whoever lives in this house didn't just shoot Billy Bob as soon as he walked in? So it was just weird. Earlier, you said Robert Duvall, and I was like, what is he talking about? And then uh, I guess now I know. <laughs> you want to know something amazing? It's not Robert Duvall. No, it is. Oh. If you Google Robert Duvall ass... Guess what the first thing that comes up is? Phenomenon? Not only Phenomenon, Phenomenon, The Contrarians, episode 60. If you Google Robert Duvall ass, the link to to our page for the Phenomenon episode is the first thing that comes up. Yet another point of pride we can add to our lineage here on the podcast. Uh, We've made it. We've made it, my friend. A huge takeaway from this scene for me is 
when he said, I ain't got no boy. I was like, that sounds familiar. And then he said it again. I ain't got no boy. I'm like, yeah, that sounds familiar. And he goes, I ain't got no boy. Or I already told you I ain't got no boy. Just go on and let me be. And I realized, are you familiar with Buckethead, the guitar player? No, but I was going to ask if it was a country song. <laughs> it is not a country song. You may not know who Buckethead is. If you saw him, you might be like, yeah, I've seen him. But I guarantee uh, video games, movies, you've watched or played or you've seen something. You've taken in something that has his music in it. He's um, a... I mean, I've heard of him. Infamous guitar player, I guess I would say. Uh, he served to replace Slash uh, when um, Axl Rose tried to relaunch Guns N' Roses. Point of this story is he had an album in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, called Monsters and Robots, which I was a huge fan of. Very good. Uh, and he has a song on there called The Ballad of Buckethead, where... What's the guy from Primus's name? I think it's Les Claypool, if I remember correctly, the bassist from Primus. It's a song they do together, and they mix in this audio drop of Robert Duvall saying that over and over again. And so, having never seen this movie before, I did not know what it was from. So I kind of had to pause the movie and be like, oh shit, this song I've been listening to for 20 years is relevant to this movie. Uh, but then I like it made me sad because the context of it is very awful because this clearly deranged old man is telling his son that yeah I don't I don't acknowledge your existence. To his credit, Carl doesn't seem to really care about that. He just tells him you know you lived a shitty life and what you made me do was bad. I was kind of hoping he was going to ask Robert Duvall to make him biscuits though. <laughs> My thought was that he was going to kill him. I thought that maybe by by now the movie's mainly bloodthirsty with all this teasing and I'm like alright if you're not gonna kill Dwight Yoakam yet at least have him kill somebody else alas that was not the case and once again you could remove the scene and everything stays the same this could have been on the cutting room floor this could have been one of those deleted scenes that was like something of legend because people would always talk about how people would over celebrate it just because Robert Duvall's in it and you know people would always say well why wasn't it in the movie right big missed opportunity through all this I guess Carl has a moment of self introspection or reflection and he tells Linda and Doyle that he wants to be baptized. Unfortunately, his timing is poor as it's in the middle of the night and he's holding a hammer and he doesn't know why he's holding a hammer. <laughs> uh, hammer, excuse me. And so this obviously paints a bad picture. He goes and gets baptized, comes back. This is kind of where it's, I, you could almost refer to this as the climax because it's all downhill from here, baby. Because Doyle sends Linda to the store to get some stuff. He tells Frank, hey, I'm moving in here. You need to quit being a little shit. We're going to kick your friend out of here. He's gone. Uh, Frank had kind of back talks him. So he goes to hit Frank. And this is where Carl gets physical with him and grabs his hand and says, don't ever lay a hand on that boy. And he says he'll leave. But, you know, he knows basically what the score is. He knows what's going to come from here. He knows what we've so, known for an hour and 45 minutes already. <laughs> correct. And on his way out, he basically says, his goodbyes to Linda and thanks her for everything and that she's a good mom. And uh, it's just the one of many. It's like the scene in Step Brothers, though, where they meet each other for the first time because it's this static shot of the yard and they're both just kind of standing there staring at each other for a while. <laughs> yeah, so he goes and he's he knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to come of everything this evening. So he goes and says goodbye to Frank and gives him his books and gives him his blessings and says, you know, hey, you know, you be a good boy. At no point is Frank like, are you going to go kill Doyle? I think that's what you're going to do. <laughs> but of course, he's a 12-year-old boy, so he can't. his mind wouldn't immediately go there. I don't know. However, I don't know. <laughs> I think that it's funny because Carl has three goodbye scenes. 
right consecutively <laughs> yes. he goes to he goes to the mom he goes to lisa then he goes to frank and then he goes to goes to john ritter and uh increasingly it becomes less likely that the person he's talking to does not realize he's about to kill dwight yoko <laughs> but they all act like they don't know <laughs> Like, I'll give the mom is probably the most disconnected from the whole thing. And even then, she knows because that's when she, the first time she made him biscuits, he told her that he had killed his mother and her lover. And uh, and the mom goes, Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. That was you. And then, yeah, then uh, she's one of the people too that's like very um, apologetic for him or excusive of what he did. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Scooter of like, Well, I wanted to kill that man myself. Yep. And she's like, Oh, everyone does that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then, and then, yeah, when he talks to Frank, I mean, they've had so many conversations about the subject matter. And I think that in a very twisted way, Frank subconsciously has been pushing Billy Bob towards this. He's like, uh, oh, man. Yeah, it's Nicole Kidman in uh, To Die For, where she uh, yeah. she basically talks Hawking Phoenix and his buddy into murdering Matt Dillon. She never says it outright. But she she paints herself as enough of a victim <laughs> that eventually mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hawking Phoenix is like, yeah, let's do it. And so I think that there's a pretty good chance that that Frank was playing the long game here from the moment that he met Billy Bob Thornton and found out that he was a murderer. Uh, and of course, this would be a very interesting angle to explore. But unfortunately, the movie doesn't. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton just kind of lets it go. He doesn't really he's not interested in exploring this this much darker take on the Frank character. Instead, yeah, they just have their moment and uh, we have to I guess pretend that Frank wouldn't know what was going to happen. Well, uh, fortunately, the grown man in the equation knows exactly what's going to happen cuz he goes to say, you know, his final piece with uh, Vaughn, John Ritter, and Vaughn is hip to his his <laughs> he's picking up what he's putting down uh, as <laughs> You know, I think uh, Carl is trying to speak as cryptically as he thinks he can, and <laughs> Vaughn's just kind of like, "Okay." He's like, "Make sure these they come over here, and you know, don't let them leave." And then he gives them like a, a wet bag of cash, and Vaughn <laughs> Vaughn's like, "Well, okay." And then he makes sure to show us the audience that he's learned something that being gay isn't wrong because he says, "You know." Uh, the Bible says a man's not supposed to lay with a man, but I don't see how anyone could keep a man like you, uh, uh, how God would keep a man like you. It's basically the Denal Logue story arc in The Patriot. Uh, so <laughs> he says his piece and Vaughn's like, well, thank you, Carl. And then it like, you know, man can't help himself. You know, men are especially men that grew up in the time period, you know, the John Wayne era and uh, eventually leading into the the big action movies of the 80s that Billy Bob was familiar with, he had to get his, like, John Rambo combat prep (laughs) montage in where it shows him just, like, sharpening a goddamn lawnmower blade. And I have in my notes here, and it's something that did not dawn on me until the last fucking three minutes of this movie because it shows, like, that outside shot of the house when Carl walks up. And my note just says, so this is where Gran Torino came from. Because in that one moment, I was able to immediately realize, oh, Gran Torino is just Sling Blade. Instead of being, you know, uh, mentally disabled, Clint Eastwood's just crippled with paralyzing racism. So it's it's the same movie. But the difference here being that uh, Carl doesn't drive any fucking awesome cars. Yeah, the biggest misstep that the movie makes is that 
because it painted Dwight Yoakam as such a cartoonish black and white villain, it kind of uh, simplified the morality of a man killing another man. It stacked the deck so that Billy Bob Thornton is portrayed as nothing but a hero when he finally goes in and brutally murders Dwight Yoakam. There's never uh, an actual, I guess, uh, exploration of what else could have been done, <laughs> right? I mean, there's the South is not the Wild West from the 1800s where you know anything goes. There, there's Dwight Yoakam has a throwaway line at some point when they're having their their big party and his band is playing, and the the neighbor tells him to shut this fuck up, and he's like, "What are you gonna do? You're gonna call the police?" Because the law is on my side or whatever. It's funny you mention that because my note I immediately took down in my notes when they started playing. It's like, how is there not a noise complaint on this shitty band? And then my next note, like probably written 30 seconds after, just says, oh, because he <laughs> he has to have that line of like, you know, uh, character development of like the law is crooked, buddy. They're on my side. Right. We fucking needed Lemonade Joe to come shoot. this. <laughs> I think that there's there's a huge difference though between uh, you being friends with the sheriff and that's why you can get away with with your band playing late at night, versus you being buddies with the sheriff and you getting away with straight up abuse, beating women and children. Exactly. So I, I mean, maybe Linda doesn't call the cops because you know she's trapped in that cycle, much like Patricia Arquette in Boyhood. But John Ritter, he's on the outside. I, I wish that John Ritter had we'd had one sequence where he explains to us, to the audience and to Billy Bob and maybe somebody else, I don't know, why... Just breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> hey, folks. <laughs> this movie does not endorse murder. But in this specific uh, instance, that was the only way that they, they could get out of it. Because, you know, I need to know that really things have gotten so bad and there was no other way of getting of solving this situation. But I don't know that because the movie didn't show me anything else being done. And instead, what's happening is it feels like a celebration. You know, like we all knew that this was going to happen. And instead of uh, kind of being bummed that it's happening, being uh, horrified that it's happening, instead we celebrate it because this guy is a monster. And this is the only way that Frank and Lisa and John Ritter are going to be able to live in peace. It's crazy that in a movie that's over two hours... It's like, what, 220? We don't get a better setup for this final confrontation uh, and just the the moral implications of it. So the house is clear and he goes to visit Doyle and Doyle's drunk and reading the newspaper and probably on painkillers or something. Uh, He's got that kind of Soma slur to his speech and is just kind of hunkered into his chair. It's some cold-blooded shit, man. (laughs) It's like in, to make another Clint Eastwood reference, Unforgiven. It's just like anyone that shoots at me, I'm going to burn down his house and kill his wife type thing. Like Carl just sits next to him with this sharpened lawnmower blade. He's like, how do you get an ambulance here? <laughs> like, or what? He's like, how do you get the police here? He's like, he call nine one one. He's like, I think he even asked him like, well, what if I kill you? Or what if someone's hurt or something like that? He's like, well, send him, tell him, send an ambulance or a hearse. And then he just like stands up and kills him. There's not even a struggle. It's so anticlimactic. He just stands up, hits him twice. Goes and calls the police on himself. Uh, it is like a Michael Myers type thing here. The only difference is his parents didn't catch him in the act. But he goes and makes him say it's a Rob Zombie's Halloween because he kills and then he goes and uh, he makes himself some biscuits and gravy 
or uh, mustard, excuse me, and just kind of waits there. Kind of like the little boy in Rob Zombie's Halloween just gets his candy and waits for his punishment to come. I don't know about you. I found it to be pretty anticlimactic. There wasn't even a struggle or anything. Yeah. I mean, you've made us wait the entire movie for this. You've eliminated the moral component of this uh, confrontation. So the least you can do is give it some pizzazz, right? Have Dwight Yoakam fight back. He doesn't have to win. He doesn't even have to uh, even stand much of a chance. But, dude, at least have him be awake, fully conscious when this happens. Like, you're right. He's he's so out of it that it kind of takes away from, from the power of the scene. His defense is he looks up and he goes, Carl? And then just gets hit in the head with it. <laughs> Horrifying sound effects, too. Like a boot stuck in mud. It was disgusting. <laughs> Julio already made mention to it, but the way we know that this was all for something, that this wasn't all for naught, was that we go back to how we began, where J.T. Walsh is just going on about the sexual crimes that he's committed as Billy Bob stares out the window at the institution once more. And he stands up and he said, I'm tired of listening to you, or something to that effect. He says, I'm, you know, I'm sick of your stories and I'm tired of listening to you. You're not going to talk to me anymore. So J.T. Walsh is just like, oh, well, fine. He tries to play it all cool. <laughs> he play like, his performance in this movie is what I imagine someone whose second language is English thinks Val Kilmer talks like. <laughs> that's, that's what I think of J.T. Walsh in this movie. He gets up and leaves, and then I think to add to, you know, Billy Bob, there might be more to life or whatever the story of Sling Blade is, is he, he stands up and looks out the window. <laughs> I don't know, man. It, it, it's just underwhelming, which is kind of a, a serious sin for a movie that's so long. Everything that happened was what I expected to happen. From the moment that Billy Bob makes it clear that he could kill again, then you know that he's going to kill again. So then the, the next question is like, okay, well, who's he going to kill? And then from the moment that they introduce Dwight Yoakam, you know that that's going to be it. He's going to kill Dwight Yoakam to protect the kid. And then you just kind of have to sit back and wait for it to happen, which takes forever. Uh, to me, the, the most interesting story happens after the murder. You know, I, I wish that half the movie had been the lead up to the murder and then the second half would have been the community reacting to the murder. I, I think that maybe there was an opportunity to explain, to to show that all this is just cycles in this town, right? The way that they react to the murder of Dwight Yoakam could be maybe the way that they reacted to the murder of Billy Bob's mom in which... Uh-huh. Nobody really gives a shit. Everybody goes like, yeah, I would have killed him too. But Billy Bob ends up going to the institution anyway. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like there, there was so much to say. This movie had so little to say and it took so long to do it. But it is a lot like Bernie in that way. Uh, and that this person becomes kind of this beloved member of the community and then takes out a bad person. The difference being fucking uh, Rick Linklater told that story in 90 minutes. He wrapped that shit up quick. <laughs> this we had to hang around for two and a half hours. Uh, Julio, I think my air fryer's going off. I think it's time for us to dine on some French fried potatoes and move along to real talk. Get some taters. All right. We're different. People see us as, as being different anyway. You're, well, you, you've got your affliction or whatever, and I, well, mine's not as easy to see. I'm just going to say it. I'm gay. Does that surprise you? That I'm gay? You know what gay is, don't you? I don't reckon. 
homosexual. I like men, sexually. Not funny, haha, -ha, funny queer. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very offensive way to put it. You shouldn't say that, Carl. You were taught that, weren't you? I've heard it said that a while, yes, sir. Anyway. All right, we are back. And before we get into real talk, we're going to get into PP, our patron pitch <laughs> segment. I still, I'm still working on making that sound good. I think it's uh, very on brand for us. It sounds all right. Yeah, yeah. If nothing else, it's on brand. It's as on brand for us as Sling Blade is on brand for Billy Bob Thornton. So, patron pitch. This is where we tell you what's going on in our Patreon. Uh, so if you're a patron, you know what to expect. If you're not a patron, maybe this will make you want to become a patron. Uh, we will have, as usual, uh, all the deleted stuff that didn't make it into the episode. We'll have our extended plugs uh, segment, which we will be talking about momentarily. And, of course, we will have our end of days episode, which was Ben's second request for the month of February. And uh, we'll be recording that as soon as we wrap up recording on uh, Sling Blade. So, Alex, what will you be plugging on our extended plugs segment for the patrons? I did not really get a chance to watch much of anything this week due to the situation in Texas besides just my comfort food uh, at night. But um, I did mention on our last recording session, I recently watched Sideways for the first time. That is a delightful movie. So I figured we could have a, a discussion about that and Mr. Alexander Payne uh, in our Patreon exclusive PP. Uh, wait, no, this is PP. <laughs> so we need to think of a way to what we do on Patreon be PP. No, it's still Patreon plug, so it, it qualifies as the PP. It's so. exclusive PP. Speaking of PP, Sandra O oh and Thomas Hayden Church, along with Paul Giamatti, we will be discussing in uh, on our Patreon exclusive. So... Julio, what about yourself? Um, you know what's funny? Before I forget, and we'll probably touch on it later on, but uh, we briefly worked with Alexander Payne. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> we have experience working with him. He follows me on Twitter, in fact. I think so, too. I, I think he also follows me. We definitely follow each other on Instagram. But anyway, you, you gave me some homework last time uh, over Patreon. You told me to watch Man vs. Snake, and I did, Alex. I did it almost like right after you told me. So so I have that to discuss with you. And then I also watch this sort of documentary called American Animals. You might have heard of it. It's it's a heist movie, but it's also... The, the way it's shot, it's, it includes interviews. It's based on a true story, and it includes interviews with the people that were part of the story in real life. So you get, for example, Evan Peters playing one of the guys that that's part of the heist, but then every now and then you'll cut to an interview with the actual guy that... Uh. Evan Peters is supposed to be playing, so it's it's kind of interesting, and uh, I, as, as a heist movie, especially, I, I liked it a lot. So, really wanted to to try to sell it to you, see if I if I can convince you to watch it. But yeah, check out our Patreon tiers: one dollar, three dollars, five dollars, and ten dollars. Did I have that right? The pricing? Yes, you did, and also known as Travolti's, Winoni's, Embry's, and Gads. Just Perfect. go over to uh, patreon.com slash contrarian prime, look at the tiers, see which one uh, lines up best with your contrarian's interest, and just uh, join the, the Patreon family, which keeps growing. And uh, it's, we have a lot of fun over there. For the price of 
It's actually less than two tacos at Jack in the Box since they raised the raised the prices a few years ago. Just that one dollar, you can throw us a dollar and have access to exclusive content and become part of the Patreon family. Unlike uh, when you buy the the two for a dollar tacos at uh, Jack in the Box, nobody will shame you for being a patron of the Contrarians. <laughs> That's right. Uh, they they both lead to intense bouts of stomach pains, though, depending on your prerogative. <laughs> So check it out. Uh, Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime, correct? That is correct, sir. And now let's get into real talk for Sling Blade. Sling Blade, again, released on November 27th of 1996. Had a budget of $1 million. Had a box office return of a little bit over $24 million. Was a, a hit, to say the very least. Based on a short film that was also written by Billy Bob Thornton from a short called Some Folks Call It a Sling Blade from 1994. That uh, short film was directed by George Hickenlooper and starred Billy Bob Thornton, uh, also J.T. Walsh, and Molly Ringwald, which has made me very interested to uh, track it down and watch it. Hmm. I believe she plays the role of Linda. Okay, so see, I thought that it was going to be that uh, she played the the reporter. or the... No, you're right. It's the reporter. I misread oh. what I had in front of me here. So. Yeah, well, I'd definitely be interested to check that out. Uh, yeah, I'm curious why they didn't get George Hickenlooper to just do the feature. Was it that Billy Bob was not happy with the result of the short? Billy Bob, you know, it had gone to his head by this point. He was like <laughs> an anime villain, just <laughs> and it was it was all or nothing with him. He won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for this and then was nominated for best actor however he did not win julio i'm gonna put you on the spot here any idea who won best actor in 1997 for film in 1996 was it jack nicholson for as good as it gets it was not damn it i was feeling so good about that one too knowing how much you love one of the other movies that was nominated that didn't win i could i could see how you may have blocked this out of your memory (laughs) <laughs> but it was Jeffrey Rush for Shine. And that was one of the only years that Tom Cruise got an acting nomination for Jerry Maguire, which I'm wow. sorry, Jeffrey, Billy Bob, Ray Fiennes, and Woody Harrelson. Tom Cruise should have won for Jerry Maguire. Not a, not a hot take. That's just a take. That's <laughs> a, a moderately warm take. So another factoid about the Academy Awards and the fact that Billy Bob Thornton won for Best Adapted Screenplay in a very rare situation. Best Adapted Screenplay won, but the movie was not nominated for Best Picture. This was one of three times this had happened. Julio, would you have any idea what the other two would have been? We're talking only Adapted Screenplay or does it include Original Screenplay as well? Uh, Adapted. Uh, then Titanic doesn't qualify. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Goodwill Hunting? Uh, no, it, it was nominated for Best Picture. Never mind. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. the answers are The Bad and the Beautiful, and that was from 1953. Never going to get that. And the other one was Gods and Monsters, starring Ian McKellen from 1999? Brendan Fraser. He is not it. Lynn Rudd. Yeah, I've seen it. Let me see if I got it right. Yeah, I think uh, Ian McKellen plays uh, Frank Willen, who I think is a guy that directed Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. And Brendan Fraser is his gardener. Mm. And 
I don't know, there's some sexual tension between them, I think. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's just fun for the whole family. So, Slingblade, uh, that was the Academy Awards, of course, it won a bevy of others. Uh, you can check out their Wikipedia page or the Wikipedia page for reference on that. Uh, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, and obviously with the budget involved versus what it made back. Definitely took the world by storm, um, turned Billy Bob Thornton into a bona fide superstar and A-list actor, and is one hell of a movie. Julio, with that being said, I think we're going to jump right into it, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. 96% means there were some uh, rotten reviews out there. You said you couldn't find any on Rotten Tomatoes, so you delved into the the variable uh, toy chest that is... Letterbox. Letterbox. There you go. So... What were these fools saying about uh, this movie? Well, there, there is one negative review on Run Tomatoes from oh. Janet Maslin from the New York Times. And she said, An abundance of long, flat, medium shots that rob the film of intimacy and give it a sleepy pace. I did not notice, uh, I guess what I would call boring shots in the movie. No. I mean, I noticed a very deliberate slow pace, but I don't know that... That that is a an accidental uh, consequence of him or Billy Bob Thornton not knowing how to shoot a movie. <laughs> no, um, yeah, it's uh, and then just like I I found no aspect of it boring. Even just speaking to the length, God mm-hmm. knows I'm a, a ninety minute man, but um, this movie was nearly two and a half hours and it did not feel like it at all. It was one of those when I moved my mouse over the window and I saw like there was only like you know twenty minutes left in the movie. I was like holy shit, there's already been two hours that have flown by. So. <laughs> Do like, not agree shit. with that. <laughs> Dwight Yoakam is about to die. <laughs> All right. So now we go to Letterbox, which has uh, slightly less professional takes. User Myoposcope gave it one star and said, the original Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, how do you feel I'm about Napoleon idiot. Dynamite, Alex? I don't remember if, you, if you're a fan. It's fine. I remember thinking it wasn't really... I didn't think it was like, yeah, I didn't think it was the second coming of comedy that a lot of people did. And also that's wildly insensitive to uh, the afflictions that the characters in Sling Blade deal with. (laughs) Uh, Well, you want to hear insensitive. Uh, Here it comes. Here we go. Jen from... Ben from Film Busters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jen gave it one and a half stars and she says... Here, I was thinking all that time that Liz Lemon's Slingblade impression was a joke, but actually, it is 100% dead on. Slingblade, Forrest Gump, Rain Man, the 90s sure were a rich decade for problematic portrayals of neurodiverse adult white men. And this gave me pause, made me paranoid. Is neurodiverse the, the word that we're supposed to be using now? I mean, we already did a whole contrarian's corner not using neurodiverse. I don't think, I mean, we'll talk about it more, but I didn't, I don't know. I, I mean, for all three movies, Sling Blade, Forrest Gump, and Rain Man, I don't know that I consider those problematic portrayals. They're not. It's someone trying to find a problem with things that are beloved by uh, pop culture and society. It's, um, you know, people getting offended with the Beatles lyrics. And there are problematic things from the past that you can aim at and take down. Song of the South probably shouldn't be on Disney Plus. I am fully behind that. But someone saying that uh, I don't like Rain Man as much as some people, but Forrest Gump especially, 
Forrest Gump is like one of the most beloved movies in the history of film, especially in America. And then Sling Blade is a massively celebrated multi-award winner that launched a dude's career. Again, it's just someone trying to find problems. It's a big victim of the woke culture. It's those people that fucking post The Rock's old promos from 98 where he says things that are funny or were funny then. But since then, we've been like, hey, don't say that kind of shit. It's people trying to just cut shit down because other people like it and they found a cause in the woke movement or whatever you want to call it. It's just people trying to be victims through media, I guess is what I'm saying. And if I had found in my research that there were actual, um, this is a, a, a parallel to the antichrist episode. I was speaking about earlier with film busters. Cause they talk about that. People got, all upset about some of the animal shots in Antichrist and then that movie House That Jack Built, but like PETA actually came out and endorsed it. It's <laughs> like, if I understand correctly, the preferred term is intellectually disabled. Uh, if I don't, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. But if I had found that like there were some serious issues with it or if at any point they were making like haha about it, yeah, it, it would be a problem. Much like with Forrest Gump, they don't. It's Hearing that shit, obviously, as you can tell, five minutes into my rant here, really <laughs> strikes a chord with me and upsets me. It's just... That's why I pulled it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, a, not because I'm out to upset you, but because... No, I I, I, I get to feel the same way. I, I'm not There's a much bigger case to just finish there, and then uh, I'm going to let you speak. But first, I got to say, the bigger thing to make is what has always been prevalent is that, yes, you listed these big movies and it was all white casts, which that there is validity to that. But the point you're trying to make and then using what's the neuro, what's the term they used? Neurodiverse. I mean, it might be a cool, thing. <laughs> cool. Cause that, that exists to make people feel bad about themselves. That person that wrote that used that terminology to make people second guess themselves and feel bad about not knowing this fucking $5 word that they know. Yeah. Like I said, there's words they use in this movie to describe it that if someone said that as very bad, but ugh, it's, it's exhausting, man. It's, it's too much. And especially cause like I said, is there anything in this that's like funny? Uh, I mean, John Ritter is funny, but I, I'm sorry. I mean, in the sense of is funny because it's making fun of, or like alluding to the fact that he has, uh, like it doesn't seem like that, is played for laughs at any point. Yeah, then, I didn't think so. I, I I mean, I think that they, I think that it's very much part of the story and certain things that happen in the movie, a lot of things that happen in the movie happen because he, he is an uh, intellectually challenged person. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not a, it's not a bit, like there's not a moment where Eddie Murphy gets on stage and just, you know, rips on him for five minutes. Yeah. I think there, if you wanted to like bring this movie down with your opinion on it, there's other places you should start than to just go for that. Cause that's just tackling an issue that overwhelmingly people disagree with you about. So this person that wrote that review may have valid points as to why they don't care for the movie, but starting there in something that it's like the Tropic Thunder thing. People that saw that movie understands the context of the ridiculousness of Robert Downey Jr.'s character in that. So anyone that starts a review or their take on that movie with Robert Downey Jr. was in blackface, that immediately discredits any of your argument because it's showing that like 
you're not focusing on anything tangible. You're just, I think you know what I'm trying to say here. It's just, it's exhausting to to begin your argument there. I get it. And it's funny that you mentioned Tropic Thunder because our final quote from Letterboxd from Aaron, uh, he gives the movie also one star and he says, hilariously fucking overrated and overacted. How this got nominated for any Oscars is a joke. This movie should have ended Billy Bob Thornton's career right away. And then he finishes with the OG Simple Jack. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Oh man, that's that's good. Yeah, I I, I disagree with everything. <laughs> to to make sure that we're good here, I pulled up an article from the National Center of Disability and Journalism in terms to avoid when discussing uh, disability. Always try to be specific of what type of disability is being referenced. That's obviously ground. Uh, that's obviously step one. Otherwise, the terms mental disability, intellectually disabled, or developmentally disabled are acceptable. So I don't think we really went out of line with anything in that first portion. The person that wrote that review, mission accomplished. You made Julio second guess himself and feel bad for a second <laughs> that he may have not been using the correct terminology, but uh, we good. So, Simple Jack, fuck off. This, I don't know, man. I, I think... There's a lot about this movie that I'm going to be defensive about because watching this for the first time was for our Patreons. And if you sign up today, you still have access to it. So go for it. Um, Hulu and I discussed uh, on our Patreon about my recent viewing of Chinatown for the first time and about how uh, while it's a very good movie, I found myself kind of underwhelmed in the end because it had been treated like one of the greatest movies ever made, which again, from an artistic sense, and it looks great and yada, 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 all that. I'm not saying anything bad about the movie itself, but when it was over, I just kind of was unfulfilled. I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's good, but it didn't take over me the way I hoped it would with all I knew about it. The antithesis of that was my experience with Sling Blade. Coming into a movie like this, uh, similarly to uh, you know Jaws, with more levity to it, like the Terminator and things like that. Things that have been overly parodied the majority of my lifetime going into it the first time, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to lose yourself in that with this. I could not believe how much it overtook me and how by the end of it, I had that feeling that I had longed for at the end of Chinatown where I was like, this is magic. Like this is just absolutely fantastic. And it's what I, as a film viewer hope for, when watching a movie and I assume filmmakers hope to achieve with their viewers. So if it sounds like I'm defensive of it, it's because I could not believe how good this movie was. And I could not believe the emotional reaction I had to a movie that not only is 25 years old, but like I said, has been parodied, quoted. And, you know, at this point is almost caricature of itself with the whole sling blade character. Julio, that's where I'm coming from. Just starting at a base level, how did you feel about Sling Blade? What what do you want to relate to Ben about the movie he chose for us? He demanded of us, excuse me. Well, now I'm afraid of saying anything negative about it because you might come here and just punch me in the face. <laughs> I'll put chains on my tires and get out on the road. No, you grab I, there, your of Kaiser course. Blade or your Sling Blade. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a perfect movie. It's not it's not shuffling any of my rankings or anything like that. I have issues with it, but that's basically where I came from and how of an emotional reaction I had to it. So did you enjoy it? Were you meh? 
Where'd you fall on the scale? Uh, I, I no, I had a blast with it. I think it's it's a really good movie. I think it's it's great. You know, not that I want to dive into the negative if it's even a negative, but I kind of feel like. You know, I don't want to criticize the movie for not being the movie I wanted it to be. You know, it's like, it's it's the movie it is, and as that, it's great. It's not even that I felt the length, because I didn't really. I was I was pretty captivated. And no, be, now being in real talk, not controlling corner, you know, I do not think that it celebrates what happens to Dwight Yoakam at the end. Um, no. But I guess when I was done with it, I did feel like it was like almost too much of a straight line. You know what I mean? Like I didn't feel the I didn't feel the 2 hours and 20 minutes while I was watching it. But when I got to the end, I was like, mm. I mean, if this was all we were going to get out of it, maybe we could have tightened things up a little bit. I agree Be- with that. That is, you know, personal preference cuz I think that it and it's again, it's like kind of an after the fact complaint because mm-hmm. I when I was watching it, I didn't feel the length. I was all the way in on the performance and the relationship between uh, Carl and Frank, Carl and uh, John Ritter. Vaughn? Yeah, Vaughn. You know, I, the Dwight Yoakam character, I mean, I'm not crazy about. I, I think he's kind of a, a caricature. And I, I guess my only other thing is I wish, I think that maybe if you had given us a little more to that character, it would have made for a more interesting story i mean not that the story is not interesting right now but if we exist to be everything bad like that's basically just why he's there yeah i mean can you imagine if we had gotten to the end and i actually felt conflicted about what was going to happen beyond the fact that i feel bad for billy bob thornton because he's going to murder someone else because he's (laughs) a murder again you know but i did not feel bad about this monster uh, getting slain by Billy Bob Thornton. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not condoning murder or anything, but I think that the movie would take an even grander tragic overtone if Billy Bob Thornton was killing someone when he could have just done something else to prevent it. You know, I watching the movie, I'm like, uh, I can see how this was just in his mind the only way that he could go about it. And uh, uh, that kind of leaves, lets him off the hook. But how much more challenging would it be if the movie didn't let him off the hook? If the movie showed that his go-to was murder and uh, we had to reckon with the fact that, oh, well, we feel bad for him, but also he is he is a danger. You know, I think that that's the thing. When the movie ends, it's working overtime to make me feel like, well, he's really not dangerous. He was just dangerous to this guy because this guy was an asshole. And yeah. That's kind of a that's that's an easy way out, right? It's like if you're making a movie about a guy that kills people, then let's have him kill somebody that's not like uh, somebody that we are kind of wanting to see dead. What if Dwight Yoakam actually had some aspect of humanity? What if he actually wasn't kidding? Cares? Like this, <laughs> it's a lot of like this is Gran Torino remade a lot of what you're describing. Are you talking about the uh, the Eastwood character? <laughs> Well, just what you're saying, like you've seen Gran Torino, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they like it. Okay, it's one of those movies that I saw and I was like, that was great, and then I thought about it and watched it again. And I was like, that was okay. Um, but yeah, like the the villains in it are just reprehensibly bad, right? And the, there's the no redeeming members. quality to it. Yeah, and it's just it, what you're describing, and I wasn't kidding. Like that's what I saw in it, and uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting story, and I, I 
I yield to what you say as well. I think you're right in that the Doyle character is definitely one of the things that doesn't work. And that's not to discredit Dwight Yoakam. He's great as mm-hmm. like this really chicken shit man, this drunk. That because it creates that weird conundrum at the end. To me, the movie peaked and was perfect after when he said his goodbyes to Frank. I thought that was such a fucking great scene. Yep. And uh, I will cut it out uh, as I edit this. But for those listening, uh, I actually had to stop and collect myself when recounting that scene in Contrarian's Corner because I almost started crying because I that scene made me incredibly emotional watching the movie itself just because of how well it was acted. And like I said, what you hope for as a film viewer is all these elements that have worked for you come together and kind of just climax in this awesome, you know, beautiful, whatever you want to call it, moment. And you live for shit like that. The problem is what happened after was the scene with John Ritter was fantastic too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's two things. One, like I said, man's going to be man. And Billy Bob Thornton was raised in a John Wayne generation. So that scene of him like sharpening the fucking blade while it's like with the score going in the background. So, so not necessary for this movie. And then the problem is I like the scene so much where he actually kills Doyle because of how curt it is mm-hmm. like it, being this was the first time i saw the movie and did not know how it played out like this in the end i kind of knew the general plot but when he just stands up and hits him with no struggle i like legit like recoiled like holy shit because it it's so shocking because it just happens so fast and not that he does it but it's just like you're so used to movies where there's a struggle or you know some big dramatic buildup or the the score crescendos so that really surprised me i like that scene so much But like you said, the problem is it's not emotional manipulation by the filmmaker. The problem is it's just an unbalanced story that the only person he kills is exactly what you said. This bad person that you want to get it, whereas who he originally killed, he was wrong for. I guess I don't know if that's if Carl thinks that's him redeeming himself because he killed people for the wrong reason. Now he's killing someone for the right reason, (laughs) which to be fair, there's very rarely any right reason to kill another human. So I, I do agree with you there. It's it's a weird is there a way to do that, you think? Like, or do you think it just it it creates an unbalanced story when you show this person that's a killer that for the purposes of this movie, you know, just focuses in on the one bad character? Like for example, what would you have wanted to show that potentially has violent tendencies towards everybody or Well, but then as you were talking, I just realized the the problem with that the the catch i guess is that if you start portraying him as more dangerous as him actually being a dangerous to society as opposed to only being dangerous to the monster in town is that then you start wading into potentially offensive territory because now you're portraying a mentally challenged person as as a monster and so now you're like just opening, you're opening Pandora's box, <laughs> you know, yeah. a different kind of worms. So I can see why the easy way to handle it is to just do, to have something, you know, to have a character like Dwight Yoakam's where he's just completely redeemable. So we don't really have to worry about most of the moral aspect of Billy Bob Thornton kind of being out and about and us being fully behind him and us feeling bad for him. Uh, but my instinct, as far as you know, complex storytelling, is to say, 
yeah, Dwight Yoakam should have. I mean, he could still be a piece of shit, but he could. You could if you could show some aspect of him that is, uh, you know, somewhat human, like uh, in a positive way. Because here, I mean, I don't really think that the movie was trying. Like, I, I never. Whenever they showed him apologizing and trying to look like he's turned. He's turned a new leaf, and now he's gonna be nice to to Lisa and Frank and everybody. Like I never bought it. I'm assuming you didn't either. You know, he has like I think two moments where he's trying to act friendly, and it just comes across as super fake. But if those moments because it lasts been... for like thirty seconds, right? It's that shit about like you're a little kid and you apologize for something, and then you do the same shit right away. It's yeah. There, uh, I'll ask your thoughts on it in a minute after you finish your thought. But to me, there are things they could have done to if not trim up the runtime they could have replaced it with other things and i think one of them was showing more to doyle in those moments of him trying to be like a good guy again maybe more stretched out segments of the film instead of just like him smiling and then you know the ronald reagan thing where the woman walks out of the room and he's just like back to work (laughs) yeah yeah that's i think that if if you had actually had a long stretch longer stretches of doyle Actually being an okay guy, he doesn't have to be great, but, you know, if you showed him kind of taking an interest in Frank and doing something nice for Lisa, trying actually trying to have a family, the family that he, he claims he wants, and actually working for it and whatever, you know, where, where you kind of feel bad or you understand that this guy is just, you know, he has layers, he's like Shrek, then you would feel a little bad that, you know, he never got a chance to redeem himself. You know, you'd be, if, if the entire movie you were rooting for, for Carl and Doyle to find common ground instead instead of spending the entire movie rooting for Carl to kill Doyle <laughs> or for Carl to find a way to solve the situation without killing Doyle. You know, just mm-hmm. if instead of rooting for Doyle to be out of the picture, I was rooting for Doyle and Carl finding a way to just make it work, then that would be a more... Uh, you know, a more complex movie and a more satisfying movie. Not that again, not that this wasn't satisfying because I agree. I, I and you're right. It peaks with that scene between Carl and Frank because I think ultimately what he's what happens is he sees himself in Frank, uh-huh. and that's what drives him to finally, you know, cross that line again and murder again. Uh, and that is just, I mean, the movie does a really good job of establishing that, and it's just the performances from both of them and the the. Every conversation they have really adds up to it. Even the the football game, you know, it's just something that you see them bonding where you totally buy that this guy is going to kill for this kid. I mean, there's no yeah. question about it. So, so yeah, I can I can that aspect of the movie is really what what makes it great. The grisly murder at the end, not so much. Uh, I mentioned Friday Night Lights in the first portion for uh, Lucas Black. I have no idea how I didn't put the two and two together that Billy Bob's is fucking coach in that movie. You're right. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a great reunion. (laughs) Uh, This is a much better movie than Friday Night Lights. Like, uh, no, I will say Friday Night Lights has over this is the score because Explosions (laughs) in the Sky did the score. And I legitimately had issues with the score here of... uh, a sling blade, but again, it for his first entry, I'll let it slide. Things I could have done without if we're going to trim up the movie a little bit, trim up the runtime, or spend time elsewhere focusing on the things you and I just discussed. Number one, I only need one explanation as to him working at the repair shop. Don't need these repeated cutbacks to him being told how great he is. <laughs> uh, two, 
that Melinda subplot went nowhere. And yeah, that was weird. Be- because it went nowhere, it felt pointless. I don't know if this was Billy Bob as a filmmaker thinking he needed to inject some semblance of romance into it, just so ro- hopeless romantics like myself would have something to cling on to. But it comes and it goes so quickly, yet it takes up like a 10 to 15 minute portion of the movie. And it's kind of all for naught. Yeah, it doesn't pay off. We don't even see, you know, give me at least a reaction shot of uh, this woman when she finds out that Billy Bob killed Doyle. I don't know. You know, something that makes it worth it. I can see that maybe the the intention is to show that there is the possibility of a life for for him. I think that maybe the movie, I don't think that, if, if this is what the movie is trying to do, I don't think it succeeds, which is convince you that Carl could actually live I guess a, a normal life in this town. You mm. know, he can uh he can be good at this job, he can have a girlfriend, he has friends, he has a place to live. He and uh and yet all that goes down the drain because eventually he he finds himself in a position where he feels like the only way out is killing Doyle. But I never really felt that that was the case. I always felt from the very beginning that there was no hope. And maybe that's the movie's problem for making it so clear where we were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the moment that, like I said in Contrarian's Corner, from the moment that they introduced Doyle, even, no, even further back, from the moment that they introduced the notion that he could kill again, and then they introduced Doyle, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. And so it's not like I need him to sort of have a girlfriend to feel bad about it. Because if you take that out, I'm still going to feel bad for Billy Bob Thornton. I'd already forgotten that he had the girlfriend by the time that, you know, mm. we got to the end. But still, maybe that was the intention. The intention was to, like, fool you into thinking, man, things are working out. You know, he he has a job that were, where he's great. He has a girlfriend, and he got invited to dinner uh, at uh, John Ritter's house. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I like the dinner scene. I just didn't care for the, the whole, oh, let's set him up with this woman. <laughs> the dinner scene did have the really good. I'd mentioned comedy earlier, and there is some good comedy in this. Mainly, it's none of it's like pointing and making fun comedy. But the part in this is um, where John Ritter asks Melinda, "Hey, don't talk about me and my partner at work because some people may not know." And she's like, "Oh, that you're gay? No, everyone knows." I, I thought that was funny, just mainly because John Ritter's reaction to it. Like we said, the the part where Carl has the line about you know not funny, haha, and John Ritter's just like terrified, and that's a terrible thing to say. It just goes to man, John Ritter was a great actor. Mm-hmm. And you see, like, you believe he's so sensitive, but also intellectual. And that their interaction together in that little soda shop or whatever they're in, that, that was just absolutely fantastic. Big fan of that. Um, potentially controversial. I think if we're just taking the movie as a whole and if we're looking to potentially uh, tighten up burying the aborted fetus, as much as it adds to, obviously, why Carl is the way he is. And I'm not saying that it doesn't add to the movie at all because we get Robert Duvall out of it and we get the redemption moment of Carl telling his dad, you know, you were bad for what you did. I would not really argue with a person if they said they didn't like that portion of the movie or said that, you know, they wish that wasn't in there. Like I said, the only uh, the aspect I'm approaching it from is if there's something I'm thinking of to tighten up the time or use that time to expand things elsewhere. It's fucking brutal. Like yep. him just describing what happened is awful. I think that in my opinion, that does serve a purpose mm-hmm. for the viewers uh, to show what this guy went through and what he's been living with and also to show his trust he has in Frank. But like I said, 
if someone told me that was their beef, like the scene in the movie they didn't care for and wish wasn't there, I would I would not argue with that person. I would though. <laughs> I Ooh, would argue with them. Here we go. No, I would tell them that it's because to me it is what you just said. It's it's that scene does something that none of the other scenes that uh, do. It gives you a, a new horror when it comes to Carl's backstory because you already knew it was pretty bad, but somehow they find a way to make it look even to to make it even worse. But I, I think the more important part is that he tells Frank about it after spending half the movie trying to protect him from ugly things, right? He's made a point earlier in the movie to not tell him what he did. He told him that he's a murderer, but he didn't tell him. He didn't give him any details because his whole point Mm -hmm. is that I need to protect you. But to have this moment where he is just so, I guess, lost in opening up to this boy that he doesn't realize that he's now telling him everything, you know? And then... Frank's reaction is also it's the only time in the movie where he seems critical of Carl because he tells him, well, I wish you hadn't done that. (laughs) I wish that you had saved that kid. I mean, it's really rough to watch, but it's uh, I think that it would be you would actually be taking something out of the movie if if it went away. I understand that it would be hard to watch, but it's still like you're now you're diminishing its strength if you take it away. And I wonder I mean, there's no way that that was Billy Bob's Oscar clip. <laughs> he was nominated for Best Actor <laughs> too much. But I really hope that they went with something that was somewhat powerful instead of, you know, French fried potatoes uh-huh, or whatever, you know? Like, they didn't go for the for the sticky part of the performance, and instead they went with something that, that was powerful. It all came together to make a hell of a movie, though. I think it's a movie, I don't know. People are really sensitive to things like this. This this exact same movie came out tomorrow. Do you think it would be uh, met as warmly, or do you think there would be more of an up upstir uproar about it? I think that the pre like the marketing, all the like you know the the first time that Deadline or whatever posted a picture from from the set of Sling Blade and you saw what uh, Billy Bob Thornton looked like, I think that there would be. And some uproar I'm like oh my god what is he doing that looks offensive but I, I think that the movie anybody that watched the movie even if it was released today they, they would appreciate it there is something what I was thinking while I was watching the movie is that it's kind of I guess you know it, 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 Billy Bob Thornton's career it just seems to have gone so far away from from this <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I do. Yeah. You you watch him here and uh he is kind of a chameleon, right? You watch him in all the other movies that I've seen Billy Bob Thornton in and I'm like that's just Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, but here it's just a metamorphosis takes place. And so I mean whatever, right? He 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 found something that works. He he found his Hollywood persona and that now, when somebody hires him for a movie, I guess they're like, well, we want him to be Billy Bob Thornton in a movie. And yeah. so I don't think he gets to stretch his acting muscles as much as he clearly does in Sling Blade, which is, you know, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as calling it a shame because that seems... It's the nature of the beast, man. Right. I was like, it, it also, it's not my place, you know? It was like, I would probably do the same thing, you know? I would do, if I had a project that that was my breakthrough... And then through that project, I get a, I don't know, Armageddon. And now everybody expects me to be like the guy from Armageddon. Well, if you're yeah. going to pay me to do that, sure. 
Bad Santa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's so the one in particular that I remembered, this guy being the same guy that's in Mr. Woodcock yep. with Sean William Scott. It's fucking crazy. And what was the other? School for Scoundrels. Yep, speaking in. of Napoleon Dynamite. There you go. So with all that being said, I did read an interview. I don't know what the date on it was, but he did say that this was, he had considered the greatest work of his career. And Billy Bob is one of those guys that he exudes coolness, which is a near impossibility for a white man to do. And he, what he does seems so effortless. It's like a Brad Pitt type thing. So when you see these movies, be it older or, you know, Brad Pitt, the example would be like, I don't know, maybe Moneyball. Because even like as good as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, it's just Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt. So when you go back and watch this or in Brad's case, let's say like 12 Monkeys or something like that, that's completely mm-hmm. like out there for him. You're watching it through today's lenses and whatnot. It's important, you know, if someone's going to consider themselves like a film aficionado or you know they're going to have a podcast where they speak extremely pretentiously and uh, <laughs> argue the merit of film. It's important to remind yourselves of these things sometimes because I think, yeah, being the first time I saw this, it was like holy shit. But it's exactly what you said, reminding myself that this is bad Santa, you know, and just being <laughs> being used to a, a generation almost of Billy Bob Thornton just being Billy Bob Thornton and shit. It's important to remind yourselves of what they're capable of. So with that being said, I mean, from what I've seen of him, that this would have to be his most encompassing and most impressive, powerful performance that he's had, which makes it all the more crazy that it was kind of like his, you know, dipping his toe into filmmaking. And he had done things up until this point, but this was his breakout role. And it's what made his career in life. I think that I fall into the trap of thinking of Billy Bob Thornton as a much uh, like as a simpler persona than he actually is, because I think of yeah, Mister Woodcock and Bad Santa and whatever. But it's really, as an artist, I think that he has a lot more to offer. We just it just doesn't maybe doesn't sell as much, or most people are not as interested in it uh, to begin yeah. with. Bringing it home here, Julio, as we always do. Uh, obviously, my thoughts on it so far. Uh, I give this an A. As much as I loved it, emotionally reacted to it, found so much of it entrancing. And um, yeah, it lived up to everything that I had hoped it would have with the, the level of notoriety that it brings along. Uh, that being said, not a perfect movie. There are things about it that I could contest, change, what have you, but certainly better than any fucking movie I've ever made and ever will make. So. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't get the full Monty there of the A+, but I will give it an A. How about yourself, Julio? I think I'm going to land on four stars, four solid stars. I, I really liked it. I thought it was, uh, you know, Billy Bob Thornton firing on all cylinders. The relationship with Lucas Black was fantastic. The relationship with John Ritter was great. We just kind of, it's not even that it dropped the ball at the end, but it was, I just found it a little underwhelming. At, you know, just that that final, I don't know, 20 minutes. And again, I couldn't even, I don't even know what the recipe is to, or how to improve the recipe. You know, I, uh-huh. uh, I don't know. It's still a great movie. Everybody should watch it at least once. So four stars for me. All right. If you are listening to this on the day of release, it is February 28th. Here in a few weeks, we have a, another episode coming out. 
Julio, we have yet to decide. We know that it's got to be a fresh movie. I'm sure by the time this drops, we'll have made up our mind. But the door is always open. We, we take on these projects. And then I always, when we get these episodes where, you know, they just kind of fall randomly and we have to figure something out, it, it creates excitement because I don't know what to do. <laughs> I have a couple of ideas that I, I'll, I'll run by you. Sounds good. Also in March coming is Showgirls. So it's going to be a, a trying time. That is in the future. For now, we want to thank our Patreon, Ben. Uh, like we've said, if y'all want to join, you can demand we do an episode as well. Uh, like I've said in the past, do not try to uh, make this a challenge. Do not try to torture us. <laughs> but in this case, Ben, man, excellent pick. Hula and I both came away from a movie we'd never seen before and uh, obviously both uh, thought pretty highly of it. So, yeah. As Julie Louis-Dreyfus would say, so yeah, that concludes our episode on Sling Blade. Moving into our perennial plugs, uh, we want to begin by giving a thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks here. They start us with Last Stand, Take Us Home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend Hans Rothgieser, he did our logo. He did all the graphics that you see on our Patreon and also on our upcoming merch. Uh, he is an artist, he's a podcaster, he's a writer. You can check out all his work at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. He has four podcasts, uh, Nación Combi, Marginal, Contante Sonante, and Living in Peru. Living in Peru is on iVox, it's in English. The other three are in Spanish, and you can find them on any podcatcher. He also has a whole bunch of zombie novels, and now, recently, he is part of a short story collection called uh, Projecto Cthulhu, which is also going to be edited in English. So if you wanted to check out Hans's prose work in English, your chance has arrived. Thank you, Hans, for everything you've done, and uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, plug your work. And we'd like to thank Zoe Perez for helping out with our social media games, specifically Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't already, be sure to head over to Instagram and follow us at Contrarian Prime. There you'll find some clips from recent old episodes, pictures on what's upcoming. Whatever the case, Zoe helps us out a great deal with that. And as I mentioned, also our Facebook page at Contrarian Prime or slash Contrarian Prime, however the fuck Facebook works. No political conspiracies, just more up-to-date information on the Contrarians. Zoe, thank you for all the work and uh, help that you provide us. So that's going to wrap it up here for the Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time. I just want you to-